Hello, welcome to the first episode of Introduction to Literary Criticism. Would you like if people don't like what you do? Of course not, but then again, who are we to judge? These days the field of literary criticism has a lot of tensions. The sheer enjoyment of reading books and the pleasures of personal response to books both can be ruined by literary criticism. Some critics make us feel that the books we love are inferior. We are obviously not fond of people who will make us believe that our most favorite novel or book is somehow wrong and that they are good in knowing it better. We may even feel that some of the literary theories are unclear and can leave us in a state of bewilderment. For centuries now, literary criticism is considered as an art of writing poetry, more like an advice to the poet or the writer. Since the 17th century, literary criticism has been applied to justification, analysis of work of art, description, whereas criticism in modern times is kind of different. M.H. Abrams in The Mirror and the Lamb explains four different critical theories. The first one is mimetic theory. This theory is used when the critic views art in terms of the universe or what is imitated as in mimic and the term mimetic. The next one is pragmatic theory. Now this theory is used when the emphasis is shifted to the reader. So the critic views art in terms of its effect on the audience. It depends on the audience's response whether they like it or whether they don't. Pragmatic theory was dominant up to the end of the 18th century. But the emphasis shifted to the poet in the 19th century wherein poetry became a spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling of the poet. Now this theory is called the expressive theory. In this theory the critic views art in terms of the artist. So in this case the work of art is internal made external. In the 20th century, the emphasis shifted to the work of art under the influence of the new criticism. The next theory when the critic views art basically in its own terms, seeing the work as a self-contained entity. Now this theory is termed as objective theory. Now there are two more criticisms which some critics have talked about. They are theoretical and practical or applied criticism. Theoretical criticism attempts to arrive at the general principles of art and practical criticism applies these principles to the work of art. Now I would like to talk about some other types of criticisms in brief which the literary critics have mentioned. The first one is historical criticism. Historical criticism examines a work of art against its historical background and even against the author's life and time. The second one is impressionistic criticism. Now this criticism emphasizes the way a work of art affects the critic. Third is textual criticism. Textual criticism applies scholarly means to a work of art to reconstruct its original version. The fourth is judicial criticism. Now this criticism judges a work of art by a definable set of standards. The fifth is moral criticism which evaluates a work of art in relation to human life. And the last one is mythic criticism. 
Mythic criticism explores the nature and significance of the archetypes and the archetypal patterns in a work of art. Now next I will speak about the uses of literary criticism. Did anyone ever think if literary criticism have any practical use? Well, the answer is yes. The discipline of literary criticism is important for various reasons. Literary criticism kind of improves your general reading skills, thus giving you more tools to help solve problems of understanding as you read up. Literary criticism can help by expanding your awareness of different approaches hence this will give you more ways to respond to what you read another important use is that literary criticism supports the development of critical thinking skills it encourages you to identify your own reading habits and to explore beyond their boundaries literary criticism can also give you a sense of confidence and responsibility about developing your critical standards and judgment and thus not having to surrender your thoughts and op- opinions to others interpretations it even improves your ability to make a good argument by encouraging the habit of backing up your opinions with reasons and textual evidence therefore by keeping the aforementioned reasons in mind literary criticism can help you to develop your skills as an independent thinker and a reader in my upcoming episode i will share some more facts and knowledge on literary criticism so be ready Welcome to my second episode of Introduction to Literary Criticism. In this episode, I will talk about the history of literary criticism. But before I begin, the question is, what is literary criticism? Sometimes the word criticism kind of puts people in a not so good mood, mostly because in everyday use, the word criticism has negative connotations. According to our thinking, a critic would normally be someone who is a kind of a grumpy person whose only motive to exist is to solely file problems and stress words but unfortunately we are kind of wrong the word actually means more than that the word comes from a greek verb called kritikos which means to decide or to judge so the original meaning of a critic is simply a person who expresses an informed opinion or judgment about the value meaning truth and artistry of something so now we know what literary criticism is so let's get back to the history of criti- literary criticism now if the word and its meaning comes from the greek then definitely literary criticism begins with the greeks but unfortunately little of their work has survived now aristotle's poetics is mostly devoted to drama and plato's theories of literature are hardly literary criticism But from the Romans the major works are Horace's Ars Poetica and the works on rhetoric composed by Cicero and Quintilian. One of the first important critical essay in the Christian era is Longinus on his Sublime and the first medieval critic of note was Dante who in his De Vulgari Eloquentic addressed himself to the problems of language appropriate to poetry. 
In England, there is little criticism of note until Puttenham's The Art of English Poets and Sydney's Apology for Poetry, which is kind of important because it is a detailed examination of the art of poetry and a discussion of the state of English poetry at the time. For nearly a hundred years, the major critical works to appear tended to reinforce the classical traditions and rules. Some of the main works of some of the main works were Ben Jonson's Timber or Discoveries, Pierre Corneille's Discourse, and Boileau's Lard Poetic. With Dryden, however, in his essay of dramatic poesy, not to mention his prefaces, his dedications, and open-mindedness, whose critical essays are works of art in themselves. Now he, if anybody, showed the way to the people the function of criticism. So he is kind of important in context literary criticism. In the 18th century, G. B. Vico, the Italian critic and philosopher, was the pioneer of the historical approach to literature. Historicism, as it is called, completely changed in the long run, and even the critical methods. It kind of enabled people to realize that the rules that held good for the classical writers do not necessarily hold good in a later age, and that there are there are or were not absolute principles and rules by which literature could be judged. This was kind of Dr. Johnson's point of view. There was thus a reaction against neoclassicism, an increasing interest in literature other than those of Greece and Rome and a greater variety of opinions about literature, about the language to be used, and about the creative and imaginative faculties and the processes of the writer. The new views found expression in Wordsworth's preface to the second edition of the Lyrical Ballads, Coleridge's Biographia Literaria, Shelley's Defense of Poetry, and Matthew Arnold's Essay in Criticism. The writing of Walter Petter on culture and art, especially the Renaissance, and appreciations had profound influence on critical thinking. By the second half of the 19th century, many different critical theories had begun to proliferate. There were fewer rules of any kind as more and more writers experimented. At the same time, the work of the best critics continued in the tradition and method of Vico. St. Bob, with his immense range of learning and his keen sense of critical and judicial detachment, was a supreme exponent of historicism. Recent criticism has tended to be more and more closely analytical in the evaluation and interpretation of literature, as it is evident in the achievements of major critics like M. H. Abrams, Eric Orbach, I. A. Richards, etc. So this was all about the history of literary criticism and with this I would like to end this episode by saying that literary criticism does not really require for all of us to agree about what a work of literature means or how it works. We don't even have to agree with any expert's judgment or anything, but we got two obligations when we put forth our opinions. That is to explain our reasons behind our ideas very clearly and to back them up with enough textual evidence. Second, is we are obligated to listen respectfully to the critics' ideas and we can learn from these ideas. 
you can even learn how others respond to works of literature that's all thank you